Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 247. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard here. Thank you, as always, to tuning into the show. So happy you're here on Dose of Leadership. If you're new to the show, this is a show where we focus on that topic of leadership. Why? Because it is for all of us. It is central to every aspect of our lives. doesn't matter who we are. It's not about position. It's not about title. It's about adding value to everyone and everything, about impacting the lives around us, including our own. And it begins with yourself. Leadership of yourself is the hardest, if not most difficult, leadership aspect or leadership challenge, if you will. And it's a lifelong process. It's a journey. It never stops. You never fully arrive at becoming a leader. And this show, this resource, this free resource can help you, I hope, in your leadership journey where we talk to top thought leaders, entrepreneurs, experts, people passionate about leadership, just like you and I are, on trying to make an impact in our lives and the lives around us. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about adding value to everyone and everything. And that is the definition really of influence. So that's really the key step on how you can become more influential in your leadership journey is adding value to everyone and everything intentionally. It's a daily intentional journey, and I can't overemphasize this enough. It begins with the small daily discipline habits. I just finished up a mastermind this morning, and we talked about that specific thing. It's about starting small. It's doing the ordinary things better than anybody else and doing them consistently and doing them intentionally day after day after day. There's nothing sexy about it, but over time it accumulates, right? It adds up to that life of significance, and that's what this is all about. I'm so excited that you're here. If you're finding value in the show, I'd really appreciate if you take the time to subscribe to it, download it to your mobile device, rate and review it. I know iTunes doesn't make it that easy, but if you can rate and review, take 10 minutes, leave a review, it would mean so much for the visibility of the show, and it continues to be a top show in iTunes, and I appreciate all of your support, and thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, before we get to our guest, I want to talk to you a little bit. need your help in getting in touch with organizations. Um, I love podcasting. It's changed dramatically changed my life, and I've started working with some organizations where we have an internal podcast solution. Really, it's a uniquely alternative communication solution which allows organizations to economically, authentically, and rapidly engage with all their key stakeholders. And what I'm doing is I'm essentially hosting an internal an internal show, an audio show for organizations where I conduct the interviews with key stakeholders, with the CEO, with the leadership, with um, if it's a hotel, for example, a top-performing hotel, talk to their management, their leadership, talk to employees. It's an excellent way for organizations to dramatically engage and impact the organization. And I distribute it through a custom mobile app. So it goes directly to the iPhone or the Android phone or an iPad. And it's a way that organizations can now authentically authentically connect with their team, the organization, at the home, in the gym, 
on their commute to work. That's something that they haven't been able to do with their corporate websites, their newsletters, social media, etc. Now's a chance for uh, organizations to engage with their organization with my professionally produced branded audio shows. So I'm looking for to get in contact with CEOs, with communication specialists within organizations where I can talk to them how I can help change, dramatically change their organization and drive engagement. Because for me, it's about authenticity. It's about transparency. You know how I talk to my guests on the show. This is my favorite thing to do. I'm passionate about making organizations understand or making the key stakeholders in the organizations feel like they're part of something unique and special. And that is the key to retention and engagement, in my opinion. So I could use your help in finding those organizations, those CEOs, those communication specialists who might be interested in having me help them produce an internal branded audio show for the organization. You can find out more at richardryerson.com slash communication solutions. There'll be a, uh, also a menu item there as well. Okay, thanks so much for that and for helping me on that. Okay, today we have a great guest, Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas. She's a prior Marine. You know, I always love talking to my fellow jarheads, and she uh, works as an assistant professor of public health at Charleston Southern University. She's a researcher, a professional speaker, a yoga instructor who travels the country teaching, I love this, mental fitness. For her, it's all about resilient leadership training. She has a book out there called Brave, Strong, and True, and it's all about the modern warrior's battle for balance. She spends a great deal of her time uh, conducting this resilient leadership training and is passionate about helping organizations, individuals improve their holistic health, happiness, and quality of life. Again, she's a former captain in the Marine Corps and she loves working with military veterans. I just had to talk to her. You're going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's Dr. Kate Hendricks-Thomas on Dose of Leadership. Well, Kate, what an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first and foremost, we come from a familiar background. I'm curious about your Marine Corps experience. Can you tell me how that started and how long it lasted? Well, absolutely. I like to joke that in my family, the 11th commandment was thou shalt join the Marine Corps <laughs> because we all did. My dad was in the Marine Corps. We moved every two years to different bases. Yeah. It was kind of understood that we needed to try to get ROTC scholarships and join the military. And that just, that felt like a natural progression of things. Um, I served six years on active duty and then I did another three in the reserves. Wow. And what did you do? What was your MOS? I did uh, military police. Military police. Wow. <laughs> Don't throw anything at me. Yeah. <laughs> Were you a, an officer or enlisted? I was an officer. Uh -huh. um, the Marine Corps was really good to me. They sent me to the University of Virginia on um, a reserve officer training corps scholarship. And uh, I was able to go to officer candidate school the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And uh, so senior year, of course, you have to graduate and right. pass, but you know what you're doing at right. the end of it. And um, I really spent four years of college preparing uh, preparing to enter the military and, and really excited about it. Yeah. I remember getting ready for it too. I was so excited. You know, I, I signed up my sophomore year and yeah, so that whole last three years, I was just so ready and so excited. Yeah. And, well, uh, and I think about when I think about my physical fitness level at the time, because know, right? really you have so much fear about, about um, making it through mm -hmm. tree level training. 
um, you know, that you're doing two a days. And really, if you looked at your workout plan, I mean, it would be ridiculous. But uh, I, I was fast at that point. I know. I was insane. <laughs> I'm sitting there now. I'm 47 now. And I'm like, and I went to the chiropractor. Back in the day. And I went to the chiropractor today because my back is hurting. And I tweaked it over Thanksgiving weekend. And and the guy's telling me, he's like, well, you know, if your core was stronger, my, you know, my stomach, my abdomen, and he's like, that's what's pulling us. I'm like, oh, God, it used to be so rock solid. And I used to run, you know, 17 minute, three miles. Oh, my gosh. I'm so out of shape compared to what I was. I know exactly what you mean. And uh, I miss I miss that, those days and kind of just how you were just on fire I man, ready to take on the world. Well, and I tell you, a lot of the work I do now, I have constant, you know, I have a lot of interaction with young service members and there's something bittersweet about recognizing, well, I have wisdom to share. I have lessons learned to share, but I'm also an old has-been who, you know, the only reason <laughs> right. I can talk about those lessons is that I'm an old has-been who needs the chiropractor. Yeah. So there's really something bittersweet about that. I totally get that. I know exactly what you mean. You're right. I mean, in some ways I wouldn't, I like having the life experience and the knowledge that I have that I didn't have then. But man, I miss mm -hmm. I miss the body and the physical fitness that I had then too, and the energy yes, levels and was it, so, so the much ability tired. to forego sleep. I oh, mean, I, I, know I it. never need to sleep the way I do now. I mean, it's crazy. I remember when I was in college and I was I was on the rowing team. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning. I would go row, then I would go to class, then I would go work. I worked thirty hours a week, and then I, I was carrying twelve to fifteen hours of college. I don't know how I did it. <laughs> crazy. It'd be great to be able to bottle it. That's I for know sure. it. Awesome. Okay. So the Marine Corps experience was a great experience. I mean, very positive. I mean, I loved my Marine Corps experience. How about you? I, I did. Um, I, I really will say that I wanted to be a military police officer because I liked what field MPs did. Right. And I was attracted to the MOS for, you know, for that reason. I did not love garrison law enforcement. It wasn't a very good personality fit for me, mm -hmm. but I learned a lot and it was incredibly challenging. And, you know, I mean, there's absolutely no part of me that's scared of conflict anymore. So um, it was a tremendous experience. Uh, I loved the shared passion. I love I feel like I can still pick out a slightly overly intense wound up Marine officer. I, I can still pick those people out of a crowd and yeah. I have this natural affinity for them. Right. So um, I, I have extremely positive feelings about my time in service. So you get out. What was the dream then? I mean, you're, you're done. You had this great experience. What was the dream from that point on? Well, I was, I started a fitness business and I was studying exercise science and you know, at that point I was, I loved wellness, but I thought that the route I wanted to take was to, you know, take the entrepreneur road and work in, um, boutique studio fitness. What I didn't realize when I left the service was one of the reasons I loved being Marine was I felt such a sense of purpose right. to my daily labor. And when I started working in fitness, I, I achieved success. I loved it. It was certainly fun. I mean, work felt like play, which is a positive. But what I felt was that if you could afford me, you didn't really quite need me. And there, I had lost that sense of working for the greater good. Mm. Um, you know, I had, I had embraced a truly, you know, I'd embraced a different, you know, a different line of work. So I, I realized after about two years that I probably wasn't going to stay you know, stay a fitness director. So what happened? Well, uh, it was an accident. Honestly, it was a complete accident, but I got hired to 
teach a class of an American university. They wanted me to teach um, a stress management class in their health promotion program. And it was a true, it was a wonderful experience. I had a classroom, a little seminar full of 30 international plugged in uh, students who loved reading. And we were dissecting all of this um, Tara Brock mindfulness material. I mean, it was Socratic seminars. It was so fun. And I realized I would like to spend time in an academic setting with nerdy people. <laughs> and uh, yet again, I went back to school. Wow. And so you went, that's, that started the road down to getting your PhD, right? Yes, yes. And uh, a lot of my research and practice efforts at that point, um, again, because of that 11th commandment issue, my little brother also joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> and we um, we said hello to each other in Al-Anbar, Iraq. And I left country about a month later. He was on a medevac flight at the same time. Wow. Um, so I spent the 30 days of leave when I got home. Um, at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and he was he was wounded, as were several Marines uh, with whom he served. And I would honestly say that that period of time informed my professional interest, my service interest, my you know all of the all of the volunteer interests I had from that point were working with uh, wounded warriors because these guys, I mean, their bodies were altered. You know, things were yeah. certainly changed. But what they wanted more than anything else was to get back to their unit or get back to normal life or get back to being get back to being an athlete. So I'm really passionate about adaptive wellness opportunities. I mean, if you could if you could run before getting wounded, you can run after we may have to change it up a bit. Um, if you could do yoga or CrossFit before that, you know, you can do it after we may just have to adapt it and getting involved um, in efforts in the nonprofit and community realm to do that sort of thing really kind of piqued my interest in this whole working with veterans field. So is that what you spend most of your time doing now? Is, is that the area that you focus on? Absolutely. Um, somebody told me once, when you go get a PhD, you're going to become very uninteresting to talk to because you're 10 miles deep in one area, but you're about, you know, you're about three inches wide. So that's all you can talk about. <laughs> right. And I have really found that to be true. I am super interested in, um, veteran, military veteran transitions in, uh, military mental health. And, and that is where I spend the majority of my time. I teach public health classes now. I got it. So what, where do we, um, if you could look at it now, and I, this is an area that I'm not that familiar with, but if give me your sense on what we're doing right and what you think we could be doing better. Well, in the community sector, you know, the, the examples you just cited, we're doing a lot of really exciting stuff. We're focusing on building resilience. Now, it's post-incident resilience. We're, we're getting people after they've weathered the transition stress of, of getting out of the military or after they've experienced combat stress. But we're doing some really exciting stuff. We're focusing on that self-care, that social support, that spirituality. Um, and so you have these nimble nonprofits who are success exemplars. I mean, there's no other phrase for it. I mean, they are they are doing things well. But when you look at whether or not those things are being scaled, that's where you see the deltas and that's where you see the gaps. So this past month, I had my first book published, and it's it's called Brave, Strong, and True, The Modern Warrior's Battle for Balance. And in it, I kind of lay out the case for resilient trait cultivation 
uh, which is being, it's just fully validated. It's being done well in the post-incident sector, in the treatment sector. But what about shifting that paradigm and, and moving that into the training realm, moving that into the prevention realm? I think that's where it becomes scalable. That's where we really make our money. I know personally, I would have transitioned much more smoothly if I had spent time on things that build individual resilience. So it's almost like the call, in addition to it, for what I've been hearing you correctly, it's more than just supporting the service member and coming back and helping them um, be resilient and adjust in their life. It's almost like a calling for us as, as the community, right? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I think um, as a community, um, as large institutions like the DOD and the VA, we have a leadership challenge. We have a responsibility to the 1% of Americans that volunteer to serve. Uh, and that involves helping them resiliently transition. Um, I think it's, I think it can be done, which is incredibly empowering. Uh, I have to be honest, I'm a public health professional, so I'm an upstreamer. I think it's important to understand problem scope and know that, you know, our PTSD rates are something between 15 and 50%. We don't even know how bad the problem is, but the really important thing to remember is who you're dealing with. And you know, Richard, I mean, you're not going to get most service members to embrace a patient identity. So mm -hmm. how do you reach them? Yeah. You know, they're, they're going to tell you where you can put your couch. So we reach them in the training sector and, and we reach them by reframing the narrative so that all of these self-care practices, which sounds like something that, you know, you do at a spa you know, when you're when you're being lazy, uh, we need to reframe that and we need to assign uh, metrics. It needs to become a testable, um, a testable performance measure. And so the book is really a call for um, a paradigm shift for uh, institutional and community level leadership. I think there's tremendous goodwill in, you know, tremendous goodwill for military veterans, but that's after the fact. Yeah. So what can we do? Are, are, are we talking about preparing us mentally? How do, before we experience this event, okay, so I'm a brand new Marine Corps officer. I'm getting ready to head to Iraq for the first time or Afghanistan or what, or, or head to battle for the first time. Mm -hmm. Are you advocating that we, we have a shift in our paradigm and how we mentally prepare our warriors into combat? Or is it more focused on the after effects? Specifically, when you and I went to went to entry level training, we would be learning very specific techniques that help us down regulate our own nervous system response, and that can be tested. Um, we can check. We can check whether people are. Um, we can check whether people are dropping their blood cortisol levels. We can check whether people are activating their body's relaxation response. Um, so we would learn to do that at entry level training. We would be tested on that every six to 12 months, just like with physical training and what, you know, you can call it mental fitness training, but really it's, it's learning about, um, managing, managing your own stress response. And that can do so much to prevent stress injury and, and to prevent depression. Well, it sounds great. I mean, it sounds like it could benefit all of us, not just our, our combat warriors. But so what can we do? I mean, what, what can we, what as a layman like me who's, this sounds great, what can I start to do? 
Well, uh, the great thing is it's highly individualized and it's fairly simple. So I talk about three umbrella concepts that do improve resilience. And the first is self-care. So when I talk about self-care, I'm talking about treating your little animal body. So what you put in it, mindful movement. Now, not the kind of movement we used to do where we ran, you know, ran 50 miles until we, you know, had a femoral neck stress fracture, but the kind of mindful movement that connects breath to body that, um, that balances, um, that corrects muscular imbalances, that, that does some really important, uh, physical and mental connection, some stress management. So there are some very specific techniques that kind of fall under that self-care umbrella. And what works for you in terms of a self-care practice might change um, over periods of time. I talk, I use specific veteran narratives to to highlight all of these points. There was a point in time where for me, a self-care practice, a mindful movement practice was trail running with my dog. Right. And then there was a time where it was very gentle yoga and that, that may shift for people. Um, and the next really important concept that I don't think I valued for a very long time is social support cultivation. That whole notion of finding a healthy tribe and being a healthy tribe. Um, it can be, you can actually, if you have strong social support networks, the behavioral science tells us, you will live longer. You have more protective effects, meaning your health is, is protected better than if you give up a smoking habit. So it's mm. actually more important to have a close network of trusted, you know, kindreds than it is to, you know, live a perfect whole foods lifestyle. And then the last, um, the last chapter and the last thing that I talk about are spiritual practices. And I'm really careful in this chapter to talk about not just spirituality as a performance enhancer, but um, spiritual practices that are thought through, that are individualized. We talk about it in terms of organized religiosity. So when somebody has a belief, and whether you talk about it in a secular sense, like social psychologists talk about it as being transcendence, a desire for transcendence, um, you know, the religious world would talk about it as having faith in the divine. And then you have specific things that you do in groups and individually to pursue that belief. You actually have tremendous protective effects as well. Uh, you improve your resilience and uh, protect your health. So I kind of uh, go, I go into depth at, in, in detail on each of these umbrella concepts and talk about specific te- techniques. And then I use the stories of some really wonderful veterans who were willing to share um, to kind of highlight each of them. Tell me a little bit about mine. Mean, this is very interesting to me. What? Give me an example of, of one of your favorite stories in the book. Well, um, my favorite is my friend Blaine, who really had a kind of textbook case of combat stress coming back from his second deployment. And he came back with all of the issues with working memory capacity that come along with that, just emotional reactivity, um, you know, kind of a, a feeling of depression and not really understanding why. And that started to impact, you know, started to impact a lot of his relationships. And what pulled him out of what was becoming an increasingly downward spiral was starting to spend some time doing volunteer work with some buddies of his, um, and 
what they talked him into was raising some, doing some fitness fundraisers, raising some money for wounded veterans. And that made sense to him. I mean, coming back to the civilian world felt alien. Interacting with his wife and kids felt alien. But okay, you want me to do something for the vets? That feels like home. And um, he got really involved with an organization that's called Team Red, White, and Blue. And today he's actually their executive director. And their entire mission is to cultivate social support in guys who, in guys and girls, forgive my gendered language, who are in his situation, who need that familiar hand, who need that trusted tribe to kind of help them bridge back to the community. Um, it can be, it can be really challenging, as you know. Well, I can imagine because in, you know, even in non-combat situations, you just take the average person that does 20 years in the service. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys and of course I experienced this too, you know, uh, after I got laid off, I was only an American a short time, and then I started to work in the corporate arena. And I remember, again, not having the combat stress or anything like that. Just And I, everybody I've talked to dealt with this, and particularly the ones that were commanding officers and they're in, in the corporate world. And, and you go through this kind of um, feeling of not, you know, here you were. It's easy to wrap your arms around what the mission of the Marine Corps is or whatever you do in the service. And now you're in combat, you multiply that by 10. I mean, you really feel important because you're doing something real and tangible. And then you come out into the, into the, the civilian world and I can just imagine how you can't relate to anybody. And not to, you know, I, I, I just intuitively, instinctively just listening to what you're saying and just kind of what my feeling is. Just like in your, your case with Blaine, if you if you can find true purpose, meaningful purpose for somebody, I think a lot of those symptoms will start to diminish. Is that right? I don't mean to minimize the mental effects of combat. I'm, I hope that doesn't come across that way. No, no, it, it doesn't. And, you know, I, I had to be very careful as I was writing about this. Um, major depression and severe post-traumatic stress, combat stress, those are real things. And, and talking about ways to mitigate symptoms and talking about ways to, to um, prevent escalation along that severity scale, I think, I think we have to be careful to say that we're not minimizing it. But I get what you're saying. In no way are you trying to minimize it. But the truth is that cultivating social support and finding purpose and, you know, connecting to God and to one another, that's, those are healthy things yeah. and they help people. And I think that's, I guess that's my point is that I think, I, I think you're on to something and I, and I think we all kind of intuitively know that and believe mm -hmm. that, but we never really talk about that. So that's why it's very interesting to me because you're right. If you can, if you can tap somebody into significant purpose of being a part of something bigger than themselves, and again, it doesn't have to be, you know, kicking down doors and the camaraderie and all that. But if you, if the perspective is, I mean, for example, even if you're just, you're at a company that's importing plastic bird feeders from China and there's no sexiness to that when you talk <laughs> about that. But if you change the perspective to the way, look, it's not about the bird feeder. It's about the 300 lives that depend upon the bird feeder being the best bird feeder it can be. See what I'm saying? And so the, exactly. and so, exactly. and if, and if people can understand that, and they, they, yeah, I am part of something big. I do matter. I mean, it just seems like, and then of course he has the spirituality piece, which I think is tremendous too. I mean, having that purpose, um, uh, kind of understanding your big why. And again, that's the big thing about leadership. When you, you throw the leadership umbrella around there from an organization or from a, per, uh, a personal standpoint, 
if you know those things and you're tapped into that, which is why the self-awareness is so important, I mean, that, that, to me, that's more than half the battle, I would think. I really, I, I agree with you completely. And I would say looking back, and that's something that I write about, that is, you know, that's something I regret. I was really invested as a leader in always looking like I had everything together. Yeah. As long as you thought yeah. I had my stuff squared away, then everything must be squared away. Right. I don't think I really embraced truly authentic leadership. Yeah, me neither. Um, and that I could have done, I could have done things better if I'd been able to be more real with myself and more real with others. Um, if I hadn't looked at those things as weakness. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that was, you know, and I think that's just part of the leadership journey. And you're absolutely right. And I think probably in combat situations with those, for those guys, it, it, it comes to, to, um, comes to the forefront much quicker, obviously, in, in its rawest form. But you're right. I mean, even in the garrison leadership, which I experienced, you know, I probably spent my bulk of my Marine Corps not being authentic and transparent because I felt like I had to live up to a certain persona or image. But I remember those leaders. I mean, it, it chipped away during that experience, you know, when because I, I tell this story a lot. But when I got off the bus at Officer Candidate School and I remember the started instructor yelling at me saying, boy, you better get some command presence because you don't have any. <laughs> and I heard that word command presence and I thought, yes, you know, six foot four square jaw, booming voice, voice. And I'm none of those things. Right. And so, but I, I, I wanted to be those things. And it wasn't until after time and particularly once I got away from the Marine Corps that I realized that command presence, or at least the way, uh, the lessons I learned, some of the most commanding officers I met and the, and the great officers I would like to emulate were not the John Waynes. They were, in fact, fairly humble, very humble, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. almost quiet to the sense, but they had a commanding presence. And the reason why they had a commanding presence is because there was a great deal of authenticity and a great deal of love. And I do say that the Marine Corps was one of the most loving organizations I worked for. There was a great deal of love in there expressed for, for the people they were accountable for. Yes, yes, I, I very much identify with that. And, you know, I think, I think females, especially in a, you know, a numerical minority situation in the military, um, as we're learning those lessons, we can be pretty comical because there's no way I'm ever going to look sound swagger like a John Wayne. And yet that's the archetype. Right. So, you know, I mean, to be honest, there was a period of time where I did cut off my hair and, you know, yeah. it, you know, just tried to embrace an aesthetic that wasn't, you know, that wasn't genuine and wasn't, wasn't really who I am. Yeah. But we, I think, you know, we all do that. I think that's just part of the, the growth process. The <laughs> I think it is, you know, because you get in there and you think you, you want to, you're excited to be a part of it and you're right. And you get, and there's some pushback sometimes. Let's be honest. I mean, when we, when we try to be that authentic, transparent, dare I say, vulnerable self, there are some people that push back on that. And it, it's right. funny though, when you look at, I, I saw this on peer evaluations, like in the beginning of like a um, a TBS, for example, where you get that after that first uh, peer evaluation happens after 30 days or something or, you know, and it's funny when you contrast that with the, the last peer evaluation, the third one at the end, you know, right, right before you graduate. And it's almost like there's a flip. It's like the, the, the stereotypical charismatic, what we think should be leaders are always at the top. And then, you know, at the bottom are some of the more introverted types. And, and, um, there's a shift 
in some of those because some of those people that were overly charismatic were compensating for for an insecurity. Now, again, there were solid performers that stayed number one. They were number one at the beginning. They were number one at the end. Um, but so, it was it was the true confidence that shone yes, through at the end of six months of exactly. sitting in the dirt together. You're absolutely right. Absolutely, it had to be it had to be real, and and confidence is humble. Um, yeah, that was is. a hard lesson for for me to learn. Yeah, it's so I true. I was a, a bit of a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but I think it's interesting you say that. So the. Is that part of the resilient leadership even coming back is trying to get some of these guys, particularly these young guys who, you know, the meat eaters that have, have seen it all, you know, and been there and, and doing the real stuff and taking names and making, you know, making things and, and is tapping into authenticity and vulnerability. Is that, is that a difficult challenge for some of these folks? Um, I would say it's necessary. I think when you, when you break through cultural stigmas, and again, when it's approached the right way, um, if it's something that people are being encouraged to learn in, you know, in a therapy, uh, setting, it's, it's just going to be looked at differently yeah. than if it's something people are embracing in a training setting. And there have been a couple of really interesting little pilot tests on companies of Marines pre-deployment out of California. And they were taken through eight weeks of, um, you know, meditation and, you know, some specific stress management and emotional regulation practices. And it was part of the training package. Everybody did it. You know, it was taught by the NCOs. It was, it was embraced. I mean, they were talking about it as, you know, samurai warrior training, mental fitness training, get your mind right. You know, bulletproof your brain is my favorite phrase right yeah, now. I like that. Um, and, and it was culturally palatable. It was something people did and stuck with. And the results would blow your mind. I mean, the results were absolutely incredible in terms of their ability to focus, um, reduced rates of problems coming home from their, from their seven month deployment. That's great. I mean, I can imagine I was going to ask earlier and it just, what you saying that just reminded me of this question. How did you sell? a holistic spiritual approach to um, mental awareness and leadership, re- resilient leadership to them. And you kind of answered that just there, but uh, I can, well, you know, I mean, peer leadership with, with military, you have to have, you have to have spent, you have to have walked in the boots. Um, yeah. I think peer leadership is, you know, working in public health, our entire, our entire design for programming is how do we make it palatable to the community in which we're trying to work? And when it comes to military veterans, it's got to be it's got to be an assets based approach. It's got to be peer led. It's got to be testable. It can't just be a nice to have because then it's going to become you remember all of your mandatory briefings. They happened on one day and you kind of slept through them. Right. You know, it can't be it can't be approached in that manner. Um, and it has to be. It has to be treated uh, like it's important and like it is a performance enhancer rather than a salve for the wounded. Because, you know, having problems, patient identity, that's for the malingering week. That's not for us. Right. No, I was was exactly (laughs) going to ask that point because you're right. Let's let's not look at it as as putting on a wound. This is this is feeding the warrior culture. It has to feed the warrior mindset. Right. Yeah. 
Yes. And, a good and I think no matter how well intentioned the civilian yoga teacher or the, you know, the VA therapist or social, no matter how well intentioned those people are, they can't be the delivery mechanism. It's got to be integrated into training. There have to be metrics attached for it to become really embraced by, by our weird little insular culture. Yeah. You know, and I like that. And I, and I'm just even kind of thinking, you know, um, and from a Marine Corps perspective, you know, I wasn't a meat eater. I was in the air wing. So I had the ultimate respect for those guys that are, that are seeing the real stuff and doing the real, real thing. And, and I've talked to a couple of the meat eaters that have come back from the, and, and I, and I could sense the challenge would be, um, well, yeah, you don't, you know, doc, you just don't get it. You know, you don't understand what we're talking about. And so I guess you kind of answered that, but let me just ask again, how do, how do you combat that aside from the, you know, getting the people who have been there and done that be your champions. Is there anything else that you've done? Well, I would say at this point, we've run little pilots in the active duty component. It needs to be scaled throughout the entire DOD training. You know, again, it's got to be testable and it has to be something recurring. Um, and it's got to be something that starts at the entry level. Yeah. It, it can't be ancillary. It's got to no. be fully integrated. Absolutely. Well, this is exciting stuff, and, and I commend you for um, packing, packaging this together, this concept. I wouldn't even know where to start. But, uh, and, and <laughs> well, I, I, I think I could have titled the book, Don't Do What I Did. Um, <laughs> right. So my entire purpose is please do this better than I did. Yeah. You know, I, let's learn this before, you know, before you face the waves. Um, that, and that's truly my hope. I mean, again, we joke about being has-beens, but – you know, our watch is over, but we're not disconnected. We have the ability and opportunity to help those who stand on the wall now. And there's nothing, there is nothing I'd rather do. Yeah. And I think the warrior, and I was saying this the other day, and I'm going to, I'm going to write a, I, I have this inside of me that there's no warriors anymore. And I, and I'm, when I say that, I don't mean in, in the military sense, but I look around and I look at the, the, the leadership that we're, uh, forced to choose with either from the political perspective, but if you look in business and even if you just look in life at the individual level, I just don't feel like there's a, there's no warriors anymore. And when I talk about warrior, I'm not talking about, you know, Conan the Bar Barbarian with a bloody axe standing on a, a pile of bodies. I'm talking about that quiet, calm, confident warrior that is doing something about their mental and physical well-being. that, you know what I mean? I mean, I think yes. that, that is, a, there's a, there's, if you and if you study the warrior culture, all the great warrior cultures did do that. It wasn't just yes. oh, suck it up, you know, you know, be hard and do this and do all that. You know what I mean? I mean, it, yes. the, the true warrior cultures understood more than anything the mental resilience that's required to be a true warrior. And it was honored and respected yes. and yeah. integrated. And warrior culture is about focusing outward. Yes. And that is, you're right. There's the dearth of focus outward. I mean, if I talk to one more person who shares with me, well, I have an anxiety condition and really just shift your focus outward, yeah. you know, for five minutes and see what happens. That's right. You know, um, and it's hard I'm to, with you. it's right. And it's so that it's hard to feel. It's impossible to feel bad about yourself if you're doing something for somebody else. You know what I mean? I agree. And I agree. And I, I do write about that. I, I went through a period of time that I, you know, lots of upheaval in my personal life, lots of public, my very first public failures, you know, which 
to me felt felt world ending, world shattering. And I finally had to ask myself the question, is all I care about anymore? The, you know, the nonsense happening in my personal, is that really where my mind, my focus, my heart, my energy is going to stay? Am I not better than that? Right. And, uh, you know, I think that organizations in the nonprofit sector, like Team Rubicon, Team Red, White, and Blue, the mission continues, they're asking veterans that question. Yeah. Um, and challenging, you know, challenging us to be those resilient leaders, those assets in the community that, you know, that culturally we are trained to already be. Yeah. I love it. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, Thank you for talking to me about yeah, it. Yeah. It's called Brave, Strong, and True The Modern Warrior's Battle for Balance. And it's available everywhere, I'm sure, right? Amazon is probably the best place to get it. Is that the best Amazon's place? always great. It's Barnes & Noble. It's, it's all your major book retailers. And then if you want um, signed copies or you'd like to see the trailer or get a little more background info, that is bravestrongtrue.com. I'll have links to all that. Anywhere else anybody can link up with you, um, LinkedIn or another website? or Yes, I'm on Twitter at Precision Well. And I am also on LinkedIn. Very good. I'll have links to all these on the post. Before I let you go, I'm always curious about who your heroes are. Whose shoulders are you standing on right now? Well, I think I, I stand on many shoulders. Um, I think about the female service members, the, the female leaders who broke molds and embraced um, embraced non-traditional everything to make things possible for me. Uh, specifically my generation, I, I truly hope this doesn't sound trite, but my generation, we had access to physical sports and to um, physical fitness and the confidence and the ferocity that can come from that. You know, because I grew up the, the Mia Hamm generation and yeah. those were my heroes when I was young. Today's young women, they're not playing soccer. They're flipping tires in a CrossFit box. So quite frankly, watch out for that. That's, <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> that's all I can it's say. It's so true. Yeah, there is some <laughs> really badass women out there. That's for sure, man. You look at some of those things, uh, that, and what was the, why, why am I forgetting her name? She just lost her first bout. What, what was her name? Uh, oh, um, um, God, it's terrible. Oh, we just know that. Ronda Rousey. Yeah, Rousey. Yes. Yeah. She's a, you know, she's a ninja warrior. She is. Definitely. Well, gosh, thanks for coming on the show. This has been so, uh, it's always fun for me to talk to, um, uh, prior Marines. And, um, I love hearing that story and I love to get your perspective on leadership. And this is, this is something new I've never thought about. And I just, again, commend you for going down this path because it can't be easy. I just can't, the selling part of it cannot be easy, I think, in some some aspects. But I think the proof is in the pudding and the data is there. And anything we can do at Dose of Leadership to um, support what you're doing, uh, you always have a welcome home here. Well, thank you. I, I cannot thank you enough for the, the chance to chat and to share. All right, Kate, thanks for coming on the show. Yes, sir. You have a good evening. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.